Welcome to Blanket Fort Radio Theater, a storytelling initiative from SIU Press in collaboration with the SIU Creative Writing Program and WSIU. In our last episode... Though his restaurant, The Hong Kong, quickly failed in Harrisburg, Charlie Berger established the profitable near bar in town. Beatrice recalled her husband's ability to, quote, operate with a minimum of interference due to his weekly payoffs of certain local law enforcement. Night of Another Sort Prohibition Days and Charlie Berger by Gary Deneal Chapter 5 A Bad Man Yet Despite his open disregard for the law, Berger was called friend by some of Harrisburg's leading citizens. Among those who lent him their prestige was J. Milo Pruitt, owner of Pruitt's Garage and reputed to be one of the wealthiest men in town. Attorney Alphaeus Guston, according to Guston's diary, often represented the gangster in court. So did Henry Reese Lightfoot. Dr. Joe Leitner, prominent physician and founder of Leitner Hospital, was, according to Beatrice, one of Charlie's closest friends. Before crossing the street at a restaurant, Berger and his men were in the habit of leaving their guns in the office of another of his friends, Dr. Nicholas A. Herman. Although Mrs. Herman finally persuaded her husband to discourage this practice, which was turning the office into a temporary arsenal, she was not quite able to get Berger out of her husband's life. More than once, she returned from a bridge party only to find her husband and his gangster friend chatting before the open fire. George T. Talt Gaskins, businessman and gambler, was a friend with whom Berger had real estate dealings over a number of years. Gaskins was a partner with his brother, John Thad, in the Gaskins & Company clothing store at 27 East Poplar Street. Talt, as indicated, was a gambler, and once he lost a diamond ring in one of Berger's games. His wife, Fanny, went to Charlie and got it back, according to John Utter, who said the story was still somewhat of a family tradition. Talt and Charlie had another common interest, Berger's ex-wife Edna, who for a time, before marrying a carnival man named Jimmy Ahrens, ran the Princess Beauty Parlor on West Poplar Street. Separated though they were, Charlie and Edna remained close over the years. So close, in fact, that when it wasn't convenient to meet Gaskins in her beauty parlor, Edna used Charlie's home for the rendezvous. But Talt's gambling and autumnal love affair are of less interest than his land dealings with Berger. To this writer, at least, these dealings are confusing. Land records in the county clerk's office at Harrisburg, Illinois, show that on June 16, 1919, Berger's older sister, Rachel Shomsky, paid $6,000 for the west half of the N.E. of Section 28 and the N.E. of Section 29, all in Township 7 South, Range 6. This is in Long Branch Township, in the north-central part of Saline County. The purchase amounted to approximately 240 acres. On October 20, 1920, the same day that Berger sold Gaskins lots 2, 
3, and 4 of his land holdings in West Harrisburg for $500. Rachel and her husband, Jacob, sold Gaskins the aforementioned acreage, plus 30 acres in Section 32 of the same township, for $8,000. On April 12, 1922, these farms were then sold to Berger for $1,000. Beatrice said that Charlie had planned to have a moonshining operation on his farm north of Harrisburg, but that nothing came of it. George Talt Gaskins died on March 21, 1924. That community leaders had ties of friendship with this particular gangster might have raised eyebrows at the time, but these ties are not necessarily damning in retrospect. After all, the fellow had class, that indefinable something most gunmen never acquire. His lack of education was smoothly covered by a genial manner. A ready talker, he was also a good listener, and when the big shots talked, he listened. Beatrice recalled that he would talk by the hour with this or that businessman, or so it seemed to her as she stood there bored beyond words. Others in the town found him anything but boring, especially those he helped in various ways. For instance, his neighbor Mrs. J.A. Cynthia Boatwright was happy to see Charlie, especially when he brought a case of ginger ale. He did this about once a month. No doubt he thought highly of her, for he let her pluck his geese for the feathers. Late one night, Mrs. Boatwright's lights were on. She had suffered a stroke. Ever the thoughtful one, Charlie took the old lady a bottle of rubbing alcohol for her legs. Mary Louise Bynum remembered how Charlie used to come to the home of her parents, Mr. and Mrs. James Sullivan, to buy eggs and milk. The father was afraid of Burger, not so the mother. She and Charlie had long talks, where he mused aloud what his life might have been if, as a youngster, he hadn't loitered around the banks of East St. Louis, where he deposited the loot of local gangsters for a fee. After being warned that her son spent too much time at one of Charlie's joints, Mrs. Sullivan paid her gangster friend a visit and told him never to let her darling boy enter the place again. He gave his word that the lad would be banned. His relations with the very poor were even more congenial. They were much more publicized as well. When a state's attorney of a county in southeastern Missouri who was formerly from Harrisburg invited Berger to move his operations across the Mississippi River, there to run wide open with no fear of interference from the law, Berger respectfully declined the offer. Generous though it was, Harrisburg had been too good to him. On May 7, 1923, Harrisburg's Daily Register nixed the rumor that Berger had died of blood poisoning in a St. Louis hospital. Six days later, the newspaper printed an update on his condition. Charlie Berger now improving. Friends here of Charlie Berger will be pleased to learn that he is now on the road to improvement. As told to our paper several days ago, he is in a hospital in St. Louis suffering with blood poisoning. He underwent an operation which proved successful and he is growing better. The problem started at Hart's Cafe. A local Harrisburg man named Earl Estes made a remark that hit Berger the wrong way. Wheeling, Charlie swung his fist squarely into the teeth of the wisecracker, who, needless to say, was out the door and gone before Charlie realized that he had suffered more damage than had the fleet-footed Estes. As a result of the blow, infection set in. For a time, it was feared that Berger might lose his hand. One finger was finally amputated. 
The finger was later preserved in a jar of alcohol, and it sat in a place of prominence in the burger living room. Thereafter, he wore gray suede gloves. One compensation resulting from the injury was that the missing finger was mentioned in Berger's pension application, no doubt in the hopes that some trusting soul in Washington would believe it to be the result of a toss from a crazy army stallion on the plains of Montana rather than the result of a petty brawl in a Harrisburg cafe. It also prevented the sufferer from testifying at a trial wherein he was accused of selling a car that he didn't own to Joe Cater. Affidavits from Dr. C. W. Turner and Dr. Andrew J. Butner attested that Berger was in great pain and in no position to take the stand. Without that testimony, so his attorneys Alphaeus Gustin and H.R. Lightfoot argued, the trial itself would be an exercise in futility. The jury apparently thought otherwise, for in the end, Berger was fined $505 along with court costs. True, the jury found him guilty, but the sentence seems light and suggests that the patient may have dwarfed the con man in the minds of the jurors. If so, the illusion seems fitting, for Berger had long been a charmer, winning friends with his easy smile and his list of good deeds. One good deed that got little publicity occurred late in 1919, or early in 1920, when he began keeping his aged father, Louis Berger. Shortly after arriving in Harrisburg, the old fellow repaid his son by running away. The elder Berger escaped many times while in Harrisburg, but he was always captured by Charlie or one of his employees. Although Beatrice found her father-in-law difficult, she liked him and even thought he looked like Santa Claus, if only for his short stature and white beard. On December 10th, 1921, Louis Berger died. Senility is recorded by Dr. Leitner in the death record. A great believer in show, Charlie favored a casket with all the trimmings. But Rachel and Sam, who had arrived in Harrisburg shortly before their father's death, demanded that the casket be stripped of ostentation. A plain oak box would serve well, they said, and instead of a pillow, they placed a sandstone covered with white satin under the dead man's head. As a Gentile, Beatrice was required to sit in the back during funeral services in Gaskin's funeral home. So too was Bert Gaskins, who owned the establishment. At one point during the ceremony, the undertaker whispered to her, Well, this is my first. The body of the deceased was buried in Chesed Shell Emmeth Cemetery in University City, Missouri. Tradition has it that Charlie often placed groceries at the doors of the needy, and that he provided coal for families that could not afford it. Willard St. John remembered that a man wanted to attend his mother's funeral in Kentucky, but had no car. Hearing of this man's plight, Berger offered him the use of his own Buick. The man was touched, but declined the offer, saying that the roads were too badly rutted for such a fine automobile. Think nothing of it, Charlie said, pointing out that he had insurance. As a final gesture, he even gave the mourner money to buy gasoline. Wilbur Leitch was in Charlie Gaskins' pool room on the south side of Harrisburg Square when a beggar came to the door. Said Leitch, Charlie Berger hollered at him and said, Come on in! Charlie picked up a derby hat, which was very common in those days, and he passed it around and took up a collection. He immediately came back and dumped it on the glass showcase, counted it out, and gave it to the man. 
In the meantime, he was calling Mr. Horning of the Horning Hotel and told him he was sending a man down there and that he wanted him given a bath, a haircut, and a shave. The man was to report back up there the next morning, at which time he would take up another collection to buy him a suit of clothes. Beatrice, who was in a position to know him far better than most, remembered those acts of charity. When he found out there was a family in need, he didn't make it known. He went and bought this stuff and set it on the porch. He would leave money and envelopes under their doors, and one would tell the other where it came from, of course, and that is where he got the reputation of helping people. A man who a few years later was to know Berger well painted a more rounded portrait, summing him up with the word enigmatic. He added, He had a wonderful quality, a heart of gold. There in Harrisburg, sometimes he'd support 12 or 15 families by coal, groceries, Pausing a moment, he continued. He had cold eyes. A killer's eyes. He would kill you for something somebody else would punch you in the nose for. He was usually on dope. Having once been a member of Berger's gang, my informant was in a position to know the truth. Never a gang member, the paper boy, Bill Yarbrough, had a shoeshine stall in a pool room owned by a semi-pro baseball player named Johnny Dow. Often, he said, Berger would get his shoes and leather puttees shined. He often paid the lad a dollar. I can see him now, continued Yarbrough, marching down the streets of Harrisburg, slapping his leather puttees with a swagger stick. He envisioned himself a Prussian general. One Christmas, he gave Yarbrough a $10 gold piece for delivering the paper. Before the astonished eyes of Kuma McNabb, a young woman who lived in the west part of Harrisburg, the darker side became apparent. One night, all of our neighborhood was in bed, and it was after one o'clock when we heard a terrible crash, and of course, mother and dad and my husband, Jim, and myself all ran outside. It was Charlie Berger. He had his lady friend in the car with him. They were going from West Poplar Street to his home, and Jimmy McIntosh and his brother were coming east on Poplar Street, and Charlie was going west. They were going up the hill, and the boys were drunk, and they had forced Charlie to run his car off on Poplar Street into the house kitty-cornered across from us, and that's what caused us all to jump out of bed and run outside in our nightgowns and PJs. Charlie jumped out of his car and was going after these boys, but the brother was sober enough that he jumped back in the car and he got away. But Charlie got hold of this boy, Jimmy, just halfway between our house and the house east of us, out on the sidewalk, and he had his pistol and was just beating the boy nearly to death. And all that poor little old Jimmy could say was, Don't hit me anymore, Charlie, please. Please don't hit me anymore, I'm sick. Don't hit me anymore. But he just kept on hitting him, pounding him with his pistol, and I couldn't stand it any longer, and I broke from our group and I ran over to where Charlie was beating on this boy and I said, Don't hit him anymore. That's a sick boy, you're killing him, you stop right now. And, of course, Charlie immediately turned on me, and he said, Well, goddamn you! Get back in the house before I kill you! That dispersed all of us, but he did leave the boy alone and got back in his car and left. The garage just back of Berger's house attracted the attention of Al Rogers, a lad living in West Harrisburg at the time. As he walked past on his way to school or to a movie, he saw within a large fireplace and an oversized safe and thought them somehow out of place. He was right. A kettle of brown sugar was secured over the flames of the fireplace. When properly burned, the sugar became the coloring agent for the alcohol brought in by the Shelton brothers, Carl, Earl, and Bernie. When the final product was bottled and labeled, some of it went into the safe. However, 
What young Al didn't know couldn't hurt him. Clever fellows, those Sheltons. They even show Charlie how to convert Beatrice's new washing machine, one of the first in town, into a device for mixing distilled water and 190 proof alcohol. The proper ratio of water and alcohol, along with a certain amount of burned brown sugar, was poured into a small wooden barrel. This barrel was then placed into the oblong tub with corrugated sides, there to shake for a day and a night. During the interval, Berger and his new friends could be found playing cards in the garage. Needless to say, the woman for whom the washing machine was originally intended was more than a little put out. But she knew better than to complain. Instead, she paid attention to what was going on. There was that time that the Shiltons stole some whiskey labels from a warehouse in St. Louis and delivered them to Charlie. Charlie made a mistake when he put them in the safe. A central attraction in a noted raid, this safe proved to be Burger's undoing, at least in Saline County. In Mean Old Jail, Curtis Small recalls how his father, then Sheriff of Saline County, and his deputies instituted a countywide cleanup of stills and bootlegging joints. In the course of John Small's crusade, a young gambler from Alabama named Cecil Knighton was arrested in May of 1923. Knighton operated one of Berger's places in the west part of Harrisburg. After pleading guilty to liquor violations and then posting his bond, Knighton was fined $500 by Judge A.G. Abbey and was issued a stay-away order from Saline County. Bowing to the edict of the law, the gambler moved to Williamson County. In June, a raid was made on Berger's place. Finding no liquor in the house, the sheriff and his deputies searched the garage. There, they discovered the safe. When Charlie refused to open it, the unwieldy object was seized and taken away. According to Small, the contents were finally revealed at George Mitchell's machine shop on North Jackson. Bottled whiskey was found along with some uncut liquor. Even more damning were the counterfeit federal liquor stamps. When Berger saw that he was beaten, he promised John Small to move his operations to Williamson County. He continued to live in Saline County. However, according to Beatrice, the safe was blown there on the premises by order of a federal marshal from Danville. She remembered it well, she said, being pregnant at the time, and watching it all from the porch. Frightened by the blast, she fell and later suffered a miscarriage. The stillborn baby boy caused the would-be father to plunge into one of his rare drunks, downing bottle after bottle of Virginia Dare wine and sobbing that he had always wanted a son. In fact, before their daughter Edna Charlene was born in 1921, Berger engaged a rabbi from St. Louis for the circumcision rites, according to Beatrice. A large party was planned, but when it became clear that the baby was a girl, the ceremony was cancelled. Personal tragedy and legal entanglements aside, the character Harrisburg had come to appreciate placed an announcement in the Daily Register on May 18, 1923. He had advertised in the newspaper before, once to sell Christmas trees, but this time he had a grievance, and was as angry as any law-abiding citizen would be who had been robbed. A few nights ago, a thief stole from under two of my turkey hens near my farm, Celine No. 4, mine 29 turkey eggs. One of the hens was also stolen. 
I have been given information as to who the guilty party is. I will not prosecute if eggs and turkey hen is returned, but if they are not, I'm going to make it hot for the thief, and I know who he is. Within six months, Berger would be charged with two killings in Williamson County. He would be written up at length in newspapers throughout southern Illinois. Even the Daily Register, a newspaper noted for exhibiting a certain appreciation of its local celebrity, splashed the bloody details of these killings on page one. Ironically, less than four years earlier, a reporter for the Daily Register quoted Charlie as saying he hadn't cut out his wild ways, and there was no chance of anyone being killed by him. Next time, through it all, Berger claimed to hear someone say, Kill Berger. Make a good job of it. The bullet that was sent to do just that had struck Doring instead. That concludes another episode of Blanket Ford Radio Theater. Please follow us on Facebook and online at BlanketFordRadioTheater.com to learn more about this project. Build your own Blanket Fort and tell a story.